thank you all for being here. This is Snapshots of Jesus. We've been coming from Matthew, but today I'm going to change it up. Today I'm going to do Snapshots of Holy Week. And some will be from Matthew, but some will be from the other Gospels. Now, Holy Week is not something you read about in the Bible in the sense that the Bible says, this is Holy Week. The Bible doesn't say that because to get to Holy Week, we've got to kind of go back in time and we've got to scroll back to around the 200s, maybe 300 AD. But that's when the church started celebrating Holy Week. And the church would celebrate it as a designated time in the church calendar. And it was generally deemed to be Holy Week, the week that goes before Easter. So Holy Week breaks out. You've got Palm Sunday, and then you've got Holy Monday, which is, I mean, it's Holy Week, so Monday is Holy Monday. I guess that's kind of logical. You'll never guess what Tuesday's called. Yes, it's Holy Tuesday. Then, now some of you are going to say, I know, I know, it's Ash Wednesday. No, 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 no. Ash Wednesday starts Lent. See, and Holy Week, Wednesday's called Holy Wednesday. Then you're thinking, you're thinking, okay, I got this now. It's going to be Holy Thursday. No, 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 no. It's not Holy Thursday. It's Monday Thursday. Say, well, I thought Monday was holy. No, that's Monday that's holy. Thursday is Monday. There's a difference. I'll talk about it in a minute. And then Friday is Good Friday. And then Saturday is generally called Holy Saturday. Now, some church traditions use slightly different names, but this is what's most commonly used. This is what we'll talk about today. So what I'd like to do is get some snapshots for each of these days, the way they're traditionally discussed and taught and concentrated upon in the church. There are some church traditions where we would be going to church every day. And this week, and, and we would be looking at different things every day, but that's not the way we're going to do it, uh, uh, and that's not the way most churches do it today. So let's start out with Palm Sunday, and Palm Sunday, we will look at it, and as you might already know, today is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is a day traditionally recognized as the day Jesus rides into Jerusalem, and the people are laying down palm branches. Now, this is a special event. This, this is one of those very rare events that's recorded in all four Gospels. Now, there are some slight differences. Matthew just says tree branches, and you can go to John and get that they were palm tree branches. And I'm sure some people just had other tree branches as well. You didn't want to be left out. But a lot of the pictures like this have it as palm tree branches. I'll use the John 12 passage because that's got the palm tree reference. So here it is. The next day, the large crowd that come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, here's our snapshot. I want us to get a couple of things from this passage. The first thing I want us to get is this emphasis right here. They went out to meet him. Ex elfon eis hupontesen, alto. Um, they went out to meet him. You know, Jesus is, is still alive. Paul never writes of a dead Jesus. He writes of a resurrected Jesus. Jesus is alive and well. And I read a passage like this, and it causes me to reflect for a moment. Do I go out to meet Jesus in my day? I got to tell you, if I'd known Jesus was coming in and I understood who he was, I think I'd have been one of those people out there with palm branches. But I think not knowing who Jesus was in his fullness, there's a really good chance I'd have thought, I'm a little too busy. Becky, you and the kids go out there and meet Jesus coming in. Tell me about it tonight over dinner. Well, I want to be sure in the hubbub of my life that I deliberately go out to meet Jesus each day. There is a reward. There is a, a benefit. There is a growth 
that comes from meeting with Jesus each day. It's not just with Jesus. This is true of anything. You find someone that you meet with day by day, good days, bad days, days of joy, days of sorrow. You find someone like that and you will see that you grow closer to them, that you absorb part of them, that you change who you are, that you have a closeness, an alliance that will, will, will transform your life. And, and this is, you know, Jesus is someone who says, I stand at the door and knock, but we're to open the door. Jesus is the one who wants us to invite him in to sup with us. There is an element. Jesus doesn't just come kick down the door of your life and come marauding into you and grabbing you by the throat saying, acknowledge me as Lord. Jesus is someone who we need to seek out. We need to go meet with him. And I don't want to get that lost in this passage, but there's something more here. Look, let's go back to the passage. The people are crying out. What are they crying? They're crying out, Hosanna. Now, the Hosanna has just a connotation of praising, and it kind of had that connotation back then, but it actually meant something. This Hosanna in the Greek is Hosanna, because the Greek is doing the best they can with an Aramaic and ultimately Hebrew word. Now, Greek doesn't have an S-H sound, sh, sh, sh. They didn't have it. They only had an S sound. So it's got the Hosanna, you know, the Hosanna, sigma, S, S, S. But the Hebrew and the Aramaic had a sh sound to it, an S-H. Shah. It's just like Saul, his real name in Hebrew was Shaul, but they can't do an SH in Greek letters. They don't have an SH, so they just put an S. So poor Shaul, we walk around calling him Saul, but his name was Shaul. In the same way, this is Hoshan, Sha, 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 Na in the Hebrew. And it's got some meaning. Hosanna in the Aramaic, what comes from hosha, which means save, and then na at the end is just an addition that means please, or, you know, I'm begging, or I pray thee, I'm asking. So hosanna means save us, please. That's kind of cool. That's kind of cool because the people don't have a clue exactly what Jesus is coming into Jerusalem to do, but he is coming in to save them. And the people are crying out, save us, we pray thee. Now they're thinking, save us from the, the tyranny of Rome. They're thinking, save us from the tyranny of, of um uh, religious tyranny. They're, they're, some of them are broke and they need money. Some of them are hungry and they need food. Some of them are in distress. You know, there are all sorts of ways they're seeking Jesus to save them, but they're probably not thinking so much about their eternal souls. That doesn't seem to be the focus as much of people commonly in that day and time. But they're still crying out to Jesus, the Savior, to save them. And, and it's got some great um, uh, significance beyond what they even understand. Now, before we leave this, though, I want you to see something. The people crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, are quoting a psalm. There's an actual psalm that says this. Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Here it is, Anai Adonai. See, you, you got it right here. And this is Hoshua Na, which is the Hebrew instead of Hosha Na in Aramaic, Hosanna. It's Hoshua. Uh, no, it's Hoshia Na in, in the Hebrew. And so it's save, we pray thee. But look at how it's translated. 
O Lord, save, we pray thee. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's, you've got the Baruch HaTav HaShem Adonai. Blessed is man, but, but that's all the Psalm says. All it says is save us, you know, the Hoshia, Na, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But if you look at what is said by the people, they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They got that part. But then they add even the king of Israel. That's not in the psalm. They recognize that Jesus is coming as a king. They're, they're proclaiming him king of Israel. By the way, this will parlay into some of why the Romans and, and, and others are, are, have an ability to get Jesus crucified, claiming he is a king because the people are proclaiming him as a king of Israel. But this passage, even the king of Israel, you don't find it in that psalm. Now, I look at all of this stuff, and before I go on to the next day, I got to just tell you, are you ever amazed at the intricacies of God's plans? Does it ever strike you and, as, as just outrageously awesome the way God has elaborately planned this world? I mean, he's got people shouting out from the Psalms, save us, we pray thee, seeing Jesus as king, not even remotely understanding what they're doing and yet fulfilling prophecy and scripture and declaring Jesus for who he is. I don't want to lose track of that. I don't want to look at life and think, oh, that's a lucky turn of events. I want to understand that the hand of God is moving. A lot of you will have found out that uh, Pastor Jarrett and Debbie's house yesterday uh, 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 or night before last got burned down uh, or burned a whole bunch. Nobody hurt, uh, lost some, some, some important family mementos and things like that, but thankfully nobody hurt. But you, you look at events even like that, and these are tragic events. But you wonder how God is going to use all of that in his intricate plans to his ultimate good. Because that's the assurance Paul gives, even in Romans, where he says, you know, we know that in all things, God works together for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. God is intricately at work in ways we'll never fathom or understand, but we should always be amazed at the hand of God who can take even the garbage in life and recycle it into something that's useful and good. So that's a Palm Sunday snapshot. Let's move through the week. Let's get something on the board for Monday, Holy Monday. By the way, because this is coming live to you and we've got such an amazing internet team and Pastor Brent and all of his amazement and others, um, you can get this on YouTube and maybe watch it again each day of the week for the segment for that day, just to give you something beyond the video thoughts for the day, something to, to address and to think about, to deliberately meet Jesus. So we're going to go on Holy Monday. The passage we're going to look at is the, tri uh, is the, the entry, the triumphal entry in Matthew 21, as Matthew records it. So Matthew says, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say the Lord needs them and he'll send them at once. So this took place to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet saying, see to the say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, this is something that to us is a little bit harder for us to put into modern language. We don't live in that culture and time where there's significance tied to how someone comes into a city. 
But in that day and age, there was a huge difference between someone who comes in as a conquering king and someone who comes in as a man of peace. Uh, we get that a little bit today. You know, if, if, um, if a conquering king comes in, you know, leading the way in some armored car with, with bulletproof glass, you know, because the, the president or whomever's coming in and got the tanks behind them and leading the parade, that's one image. But the image of someone who's coming in in a Toyota who's uh, got their, you know, stuff in the back, a um, little different image. And what, what Jesus is doing here is Jesus is not coming in as a conquering king. A conquering king back then would have ridden in on a steed, on a horse, would have been, you know, at the, or, or gone in in, uh, in front of their army. But Jesus goes in the way a merchant would have or the way a king would have if the city had surrendered to the king. If the king was able to just take the city not by storm. And we know Jesus is coming in as a king. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's coming in for the kingdom of God to establish the kingdom of God. But he does not do it coming in as the big showy conquering king by force. He's coming in to be the king of the kingdom by peaceful means as we surrender to him rather than him smiting us and forcing us to accept his lordship. There's a difference there. And the passage that Matthew references back is the passage out of Zechariah 9 verse 9. And here's what the passage says in English. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout out loud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus the meek, Jesus the kind, Jesus the gentle, Jesus the humble, we can rejoice that he comes to us in that way. We can rejoice greatly as he comes to us that way. Whoops, I went backwards. We can rejoice greatly, but here's the key. While we can rejoice greatly at our king who comes to us humbly and we submit to him, do not be deceived. This is not the only coming of Jesus. Jesus says he will come again. And when he comes again, he's not coming humbly on the back of a colt. The story is given in Revelations 19, Revelation 19, the vision, that I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. That's not a beast of burden. That's a war beast. A white horse and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And I can't even read that verse without a chill going down my spine and almost tears welling up in my eyes because that is the name of Jesus. And by name, I mean that's his reputation. That's his established track record. That's who he is and what he's done. He is faithful and he is true. And in his righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, crowns. Uh, he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now, remember, name. Don't think of name the way we use it today of, oh, Jesus. Well, of course we know his name. It's Jesus as a label. This isn't some magic word. Jesus, we say the word Jesus and everything is fine. And Jesus and everything goes away. No, this is not, there's not magic in the word Jesus. But if we understand name, onoma in, in Greek, shem in Hebrew, if we understand name as a statement of your character, a statement of who you are and what you've done, 
then we've got something to say over any crisis of life. We can say the name of Jesus, but we're not saying the magic name of Jesus. We're saying the one who died was resurrected and will come again. The one who cares enough to give himself. The one who is faithful and true. The one who is righteous. But Jesus here has on on his head many times a name that no one knows but himself. That's because there's so much Jesus has done and so much that Jesus is that even we don't know it all. I love what Francis Schaeffer said. He says, we can truly know God, but we cannot know God fully. Think about that. We can truly know him, but we can't know him fully. He's got He's much deeper than we can even fathom. There's much more to him than meets the eye. C.S. Lewis would say that Aslan is not a gentle lion. A name that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now his robe is his sign of victory. And the victory of Jesus comes from the blood of Jesus. He reigns and comes again as a judging king with his judgment cloaked in his own blood. And the name by which he's called is the Word of God. By the way, that Greek word logos that's translated here word also means reason, message, story. He is the culmination of God's story with humanity. He's the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vineyards where the grapes of wrath are stored. This is the passage that song comes from. Because the song recognizes Jesus comes in to Jerusalem to die in a humble, giving way seeking our submission to him. But there will come again a day where those that have chosen not to submit will submit by, in a sense, force. They'll have no choice. Paul says it this way in Philippians. He says that that God has bestowed on Jesus the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, when you see what he's done, when you see who he is, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father of those, Paul says, who are on earth, in the heavens, and under the earth. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Everyone. I just want to do it ahead of time because in all the crazy hubbub of life, I want to deliberately go out to meet Jesus as the man of peace. I don't want him to come against me in war. All right, that's our thought for Holy Monday. Let's go to Holy Tuesday now. What do we have for Holy Tuesday? Well, what I picked for us for a snapshot is the puzzle of God. I love the puzzle of God. And by that, I mean scripture. I love the way scripture fits together. So I've grabbed a couple of passages for you to dwell on in light of Holy Tuesday. John 1.29, Acts 8.32, and Isaiah 53.7 and 8. Here it is. First, the John passage. The next day, he, who's John the Baptist here, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, that's at the start of Jesus' ministry. That's John 1, 29. But if we shift to Acts 8, 32, we read in the process of the the teaching of the apostles and people uh, and leaders of the church, the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. You see, this passage comes from uh, um, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading the Bible in his chariot on his way uh, to 
through the countryside and Philip meets him. And Philip says, do you know what you're reading? And it says, now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. He's reading from Isaiah 53 and verses seven and eight are quoted there. And Philip says, do you understand this? And the Ethiopian eunuch says, well, not really. And he says, well, let me tell you about Jesus. And he starts to open the word of God. And at the end, the Ethiopian eunuch says, um, okay, well, there's water. I'm ready to be baptized. It's, it's, it's a great story in Acts 8. And uh, I urge you to go back and read it or go back and listen to Pastor Jarrett's sermon on it. But it's a great story. So here's the key. Isaiah 53, 7 and 8 doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists in context. So you can start at the beginning of Isaiah 53. I'm starting here with verse 3. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. Verse 4, yet surely he has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. Okay, it keeps going. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace with his wounds. We are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Then we get to the passage that's quoted out of the book of Acts. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. This is incredible because if you take it in context, you understand that what Jesus did is took upon himself the punishment that was properly due to all humanity. All of humankind are rightly punished by their, for their sin. Now, you may be sitting there and say, well, that's not a very nice God. Why does he have to punish for sin? Why can't God just take an eraser and say, well, I'm going to let it slide? And the reason why is God is a just God. Justice is a consistency. Justice says if one thing happens, something else is the consequence. You know, it's not just uh, Newton who discovered the third law of physics. To every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. That resonates in an idea of, of cosmic justice. God is a just God. God cannot just willy-nilly say, well, I kind of like that old Chris Todd. He's a nice fella. I think I'll just let him slide with his sin. But that Brent Johnson guy, he can be persnickety. So I may not let old Brent slide quite so easy. Well, that's not the way God is. God is a just God. And so there has to be for sin. Sin is... Um, Sin is a cancer. Sin is called in, in scriptural language impurity. So if you think of God as 100% pure, you know, like milk, a glass of milk, that's just 100% milk. Sin is a dropper of ink. And you may have some sin that's just a little sin. Maybe it's one drop in the milk. Or maybe it's a whole cup in the milk. Either way, the milk's not 100% milk. Or think of it like a, an exam. You got a 100 on the exam, means you got everything right. If you miss a question, if you've got a sin, you're not 100. You can get, there can be a thousand questions on the exam and you only miss one. You still don't get 100. You get a 99.9. .9. There could be a million questions. You miss one, you still don't get 100. You get a 99.99999. The impurity can't be taken into God. God can't ever be less than 100%. So for God to bring you and me into a fellowship with him, he's got to justly deal with our sin. The punishment has to be paid. The price, there has to be the equal and opposite reaction.
And so within the framework of that, Jesus is the one who bore the punishment we were supposed to bear. That is God's eternal cosmic justice on sin. So then we die with Christ and we are resurrected a new life. We are resurrected in his purity. We share his pure resurrection. That's after he bore our sin. And so as we are born again, we have that cosmic purity. We are 100% pure. When Peter says that, that, that God forgives our sins, he doesn't say past sins because God forgives all our sins in Jesus, past, present, and future. Ones we did on purpose, ones we did on accident. That's the cosmic justice we have because Jesus took it. But I want to tell you, have you ever seen a picture like this? This is actually a sculpture. You'll see it in carvings, engravings, pictures. This is called the Agnus Dei. Agnus is Latin for lamb. Dei is of God. So this is the lamb of God. And that's what John was talking about Jesus being. That's what Acts recorded Jesus as being, referencing back to the passage that we have in Isaiah. But look at the way this sculpture is made. This is the typical Agnus Dei, Lamb of God. He carries a banner in victory. But the banner is capped by the cross because the victory is in the cross. You'll see that he's a lamb because he's being led to the slaughter. The lamb is going to be sacrificed for the victory. But you'll also see one of the legs raised for the lamb. And that's because the lamb's not having to be drugged to the slaughter. He's not having to be clubbed over the head and carried to the slaughter. He's voluntarily going to the slaughter. He's walking there under his own power because Jesus did what he did voluntarily. It was his choice. And I got to tell you, this God still stuns me. I look at the puzzle of how these scriptures fit together over hundreds and hundreds of years. And I, I just, I'm just stunned by this. The God who loves me that much, who goes to such lengths for me. And on Tuesday, I'm going to urge you to consider contemplating these things. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All right, we're rolling through. We don't have a ton more time, but we've got time to make it through the last couple of days that I want to make it through with you. And that is, get us to Holy Wednesday first. Now, Holy Wednesday is a day that typically within the church is celebrated in one or two ways. It's either uh, uh, Mary anointing the feet of Jesus or it's Judas figuring out how he's going to betray Jesus. I thought we might at least uh, for our picture choose the Mary. I'm, I'm a glass half full guy, so I didn't want to put, although there is a really bizarro song by you 2 the end of the world. If you go back and listen to it sometime, it's sung from the perspective of Jesus. And it's written by Bono, who's a believer. And he's kind of trying to get into the mind of Judas and what Judas was doing and thinking. It's an eerie, weirdo song, but, but I, I'm not putting that up here. Uh, I'm putting up uh, Mary anointing the feet of Jesus. The story is out of John 12, and they're packaged together in, in the first eight verses. It starts out six days before the Passover, Pesach. Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Now Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at a table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment. Now you think about a pound. You, um, of expensive ointment. Um, you know, a stick of butter is a fourth of a pound. So you're dealing with uh, about uh, four sticks of butter. If it, you know, A pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, 
Well, why wasn't this ointment sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? That's like uh, uh, almost you know, 10 months of wages. You could have sold that for a boatload. You could have given the money to the poor. Now, there's something to this story, but I want to look at it in a couple of aspects. I didn't put the Greek up here because the Greek loses a pun, but there's a pun in the Hebrew and Aramaic where this story was, was lived, where Jesus was speaking. So you see, Martha serves him, and Mary takes a pound of expensive ointment and anoints the feet of Jesus. There's a Hebrew pun on him having his feet anointed. The Hebrew word for anoint is Mashiach. It's, it's, it is Messiah. In Greek, it would be Christos if they had made the pun in the Greek, but they're using a different Greek word here for anoint. But don't lose the pun in the way this was originally unfolding as events. Because Jesus is the Messiah, and he's being anointed as the Messiah. He's being Messiahed. The anointing, so in Hebrew history, there would be three different groups of people significantly anointed in this way, in a formal ritualistic anointment, not in the way of the feet, but over the head. And you would anoint the head of a prophet. You would pour oil over the head of a prophet. You would anoint the head of a priest. The priests were all anointed with oil. And you would anoint the head of a king. The kings were anointed with oil. And Jesus is the Messiah as both prophet, priest, and king. He is a prophet of God who proclaims the word of God. He is the priest of God, the high priest who goes before us and ministers and intercedes on our behalf with God. And he's also the king of kings and lord of lords. So he's prophet, priest, and king. But she's doing something different here. She's anointing his feet. So you take that pun of anointment and he's the Messiah, but it's his feet. Now, Genesis 3.15 really ought to resonate in your brain when you read this. Because in Genesis 3.15, remember, John's a book that's written around the Old Testament, five books of Moses. It starts out in the beginning, just like Genesis starts out in the beginning. You know, he'll give seven miracles, like there are seven days of creation. He'll end the seventh miracle with the resurrection of Jesus and Mary will go into the garden and she'll mistake Jesus as a gardener because at the end of seven days of creation, Adam is in the garden and he's the gardener. I mean, so, so Matthew's just really, I mean, John is really wrapped up in this creation account of Genesis. And here's another passage where it's happening because when when Adam and Eve have sinned and fallen and God's pronouncing the curse upon them, he also curses Satan and he also promises that from woman will come one who will tread upon Satan's head. He will, and even though Satan will bruise his foot, but the emphasis in that prophecy in Genesis 3 is that it's the feet of Jesus that are going to stomp in victory over Satan at an expense to Jesus. And that's what's happening here. Those feet are getting anointed for what they're about to do to the enemy. They're getting messiah because the Messiah is about to trample. His feet are going to walk upon the enemy even as the enemy will hurt him and pierce his feet. So the prophecies here are profound. Now, the contrast, though, is with Judas. And so look at the contrast with Judas. He's one of the disciples, and he said, well, why isn't the ointment sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And the passage continues. He says, uh, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was like taking a cut out of the purse. And he had charge of the money bag, and he used to help himself to whatever was put in it. Jesus said, just leave her alone. She's done this for the day of my burial. You're always going to have the poor. You're not always going to have me. Just chill, okay? Cut her some slack. She's doing the right thing. 
Well, I put down here, where am I? Because this is my reflection during this uh, snapshot. Where am I in this? Where do I land? Am I looking to give what I, the very best of what I've got to Jesus? Or am I looking to keep it for myself? Maybe even using some excuse of, well, I might need it to give to the poor. Or I might need it for this, that, and the other. Maybe I'm lying to myself about it. I mean, what, am, what do we do with this life that we've got? Where really is our focus? Are we truly honed in on the kingdom? Are we truly seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Do we really care more about that than we do ourselves? Now, I'm not great at this. I'm talking to myself, but I'm hearing the words I'm saying, and I hope you are too, because we can all be better at this. And anybody who's hearing this who says, well, I've got that, heaven help you, because we don't have it. This is our struggle. This is the constant struggle to grow and to be better, to be more devoted to God and his kingdom and his cause. But that's why we reflect on these things. That's why we teach these lessons. That's why we have Holy Week. That's why we think about these things because we're trying to deliberately pursue our God. This is part of going out to meet him. So I hope you'll join me in that as we look at ourselves on Holy Wednesday. Now, Monday, Thursday, and this is the last day I'm going to cover with you. Monday, Thursday. Monday is a funny word. I used to laugh at this word. I grew up in a church where we didn't really celebrate um, religious calendars per se. And so uh, uh, one of my, my, in fact, my best friend in high school was Kevin Parker. And Kevin went to a Presbyterian church where they celebrated these things. And one time I was talking to him and I said, uh, hey, uh, you want to play football or something? I was on a, um, was on a Thursday. And he says, uh, well, you know, I, we were going to go to a Monday, Thursday service at church. I was like, Monday who? And, and you know, I, I just didn't even get it. I said, what's Monday, Thursday? I'm not sure he got it then either, but he knew what it was. It was Monday, Thursday. And ever since then, Kevin and I have made uh, a point of reminding each other when we see each other when Monday, Thursday might be coming around. But Monday comes from the Latin word mandatum, um, which is found within the, the, the confines of the Latin liturgy of the church and the Latin scriptures of the church. And so Monday, Thursday is, it, by the way, that Monday word, mandatum in the, in the Latin, we get the word mandate from it. It's the mandate. It's the instruction of Jesus that's celebrated on Monday, Thursday. Specifically, it's when Jesus washed the feet of his apostles. And so we've got the story. Here it is in John 13. Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, when we're reading this in the English, it reads good. We get it. But if you're reading it in the Greek, there's something that just snaps in your face. It's like, wow, that's cool. You see, we read Jesus rose from supper. By the way, they, they laid down when they ate. They reclined. Jesus rose from supper. And Jesus did. He rose from supper. But in the Greek, John writes it using the present tense. Uh, scholars would call it the historical presence because he's clearly not describing something happening as he's writing. It's something that happened in the past, so we appropriately translate it in the past. But in the Greek, he uses the present tense. And you'd have picked up on that if you were hearing this letter read to you. So you see present tense peppering this all the way through because he wants you to live it. He wants you to experience. So it's, it, we still use the present tense in, like that today. I could tell this story the way it's, it's translated. Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. 
I could do it in the past tense, or I could do it in a historical present, a vivid present. I could do it like this. So Jesus rises from supper and he lays aside his outer garments and he pours water into a basin and he, and he, and he begins and he's washing the, the disciples' feet and he's wiping them. And, and you can tell it in a present tense and it makes it a very vivid story. It's like John just remembers this so clearly. There's something so important about this story that he wants to give it in a very vivid uh, trend, uh, uh, story. And so he does this. He uses the present tense so that we live the vividness, so that we're experiencing this. This is too important just to look at as, oh, that was nice history. This is so important. It's like experience the moment yourself. And so in the process of this, the story continues in this vivid present tense. And he comes to Simon Peter, as, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus says, what I'm doing, you don't understand now, but afterwards you will. Now, Simon understood, Peter understood, that in that culture and in that day, if a man is going to have his feet or is going to wash another person's feet, that man would only do so if he were a slave. In fact, under Hebrew law, you couldn't make a Hebrew slave wash a Hebrew's feet. Had to be a foreign slave because it's below the dignity of a Hebrew slave. And so for Jesus to be washing his apostles' feet as an adult male washing their feet, and I say that because as uh, bad as it may sound, the, the dad could make children wash his feet and the dad could make a wife wash his feet. But you couldn't get an adult male to wash your feet unless they were a foreign servant, okay? So you just don't want to push this too far. But that's the culture. And so Peter's there and he's like, oh no, you're not, you're not a foreign slave. You're not my slave that you're going to wash my feet. And, and Peter's not having anything to do with it. Peter said, you'll never wash my feet. And so Jesus answered and said, well, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. At which point Peter <laughs> says, okay, well then don't just wash my feet, wash my hands, wash my head. Let's go, you know, Peter's Mr. Extreme, extreme in the extreme. And you see it over and over and over with him. It's just uh, his nature, shall we say. But, but Peter's like, you're not going to do this. You're not going to be my slave. And what Peter didn't understand is twofold. One point is, Jesus truly did come to serve. I, the whole act of God becoming man is, is not one of, of lordship. It's one of service. It's one of humility. It's one of, of uh, taking on something much less than you are. And Jesus says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom of many. So on one level, we get this because Jesus is is a servant, but it's a much deeper level than that. It's the level that the whole purpose of Jesus coming is to wash us clean. And, and, and that cleanliness is the focus of Easter. And so we have Monday, Thursday, where Jesus mandates that we are to be washed by him. And if Jesus doesn't wash us clean, then we don't have any share with him. We cannot partake of God dirty unless we're coming to God to be washed and then we're made clean. And that's the beauty of Monday, Thursday. So within the framework of this, this is Holy Week and it brings us to Good Friday. Good Friday, I want you to come plug in. At church, the main campus, Champions Campus, 6 p.m. in the worship center, we will have a Good Friday service with the Lord's Supper. And so I urge you to get to church for Good Friday. I've got your meditation snapshots up to Good Friday. Good Friday, you can grab it, and that'll feed you for Saturday, and then you come back for Easter Sunday. In conclusion, where do we go? Three lenses I want you to take with you from this. The first is, I stand amazed. I'm amazed at God. I'm amazed at Jesus. I'm amazed that this is a plan he's put in place from the beginning. 
and that we stand in the middle of it. Do you know the song, uh, we grew up singing it, I stand amazed at the presence, in the presence of Jesus and Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How wonderful, how marvelous, and my song shall ever be. How wonderful, oh, how marvelous is my Savior's love for me. For me, it was in the garden. For me, for me. You know, this is what God has been about from the beginning, is loving you enough to die for you. And we need to run meet him because that's where I want to be. I want to go out and meet Jesus. I want to meet him eternally, but I want to meet him every day. I want to meet him every minute. I want to meet him in crisis. I want to meet him when the sun is out and the wind's behind me. I want him in the good days as well as the bad days. I want to meet Jesus. I want to seek him involved in every aspect of my life. As I prepare for Easter, I'm going to keep focusing on these things. I'll give you video thoughts for the day this week. Each day is going to be focused on Jesus and unfolding the Easter story. So I hope you'll join me for those. Meanwhile, I'm so sorry that, that I'm not there live with you today, but I'm loving being live with you this way. And I pray God's blessings on you and ask God in the name of Jesus to be with you, to meet you, to take you, to wash you, and to restore you in all of the joy that he has for you. And that's my prayer for you. Love you guys. I'll try to see you at the Good Friday service. I'll try to see you at Easter. But if I don't see you on those, I hope to be back by God's grace in two weeks and I'll be teaching more snapshots from Jesus. So uh, uh, Brent's behind the camera right now, but he's waving goodbye to you as well. And uh, we love you guys. Bye-bye.